Hey, Kyle. Hey, Rav. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me back. So, um, we're here to, uh, and I don't, I don't know about you, I can't speak for you, obviously, here, but I'm here to, uh, I guess, almost, I'm going to try and restrain myself, but I, I really am tempted to have a rant um, <laughs> about this article uh, that has been uh, picked up and uh promoted by a few Pilates pages on on the Instagram. Um, yeah, so uh, you, you actually shared it with me as well. Uh, I've had like half a dozen listeners reach out to me in the DM going, have you seen this? Uh, so yeah, do you want to set it up? Sure. Um, first, I'll try to read the title of the article. Um, and I am verbatim reading what the title is. So it says, Pilates injuries are on the rise, body says, amid calls for regulation. So like, big, big words. Um, and the reason that I sent this article to you is because, of course, it was clickbait. And well, actually, I didn't find it on the interweb. First, I found it through Instagram. And I was so intrigued that I had to like go search out the actual article. Um, and it is in my humble opinion, definitely a little bit of propaganda, definitely a little bit of clickbait, but also does touch on, I think, a lot of really real conversations, stereotypes, and like continued misconceptions that we have in our industry. And like you and I have talked about this before, but there's a, a lot of fear mongering in here, um, a lot of call for regulation. A lot of talk about people just like destroying their bodies with Pilates, which I feel like I also am going to restrain my desire to rant about this. <laughs> that's that's where I'll leave it. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, yeah. So this this was an article actually I'm ashamed to say by this ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is the Australian national you know public kind of uh, you know they do the news and they have a radio station and all that kind of stuff here. Uh, and it was pick. It's, it's a it's a pretty terribly written article, and I, I want to go through the some of the many ways that I think it's badly written. Uh, and and then it was picked. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. And poorly researched. Absolutely. Uh, and then it was picked up and quoted out of context by. <laughs> Uh, by various Pilates pages, which is even worse. It's like compounding, you know, uh, on the original. On misinformation. Right. So so the basic gist of the article is that, you know, I mean, it's kind of encapsulated in the title, is that like, okay, Pilates is dangerous. There is, there's an increase in Pilates injuries. It's dangerous if you do it wrong, if you don't have a, and, you know, uh, coincidentally, the people saying it's dangerous if you don't have a highly qualified instructor are the highly qualified instructors and the people who certify the highly qualified instructors. Uh, and there's calls for regulation, amid, amid calls for regulations. Like that sounds like there's, there's a, there's like this whole, like, you know, groundswell movement of, you know, people like, like an, like this sort of like huge crowd of people, you know, calling for regulation. And in the midst of all that, there's, this, you know, the Pilates body saying injuries are on the rise. It's like, no, the woman from the Pilates body who said injuries on the rise based on no evidence uh, is the only person who called for regulation. So, uh, yeah, I think the word amid 
they, I think they quoted <laughs> one instructor who was calling for regulation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I, I was just, uh, I've actually kind of got, I've got quite a few notes on this cause I've been, you know, as I was running this morning, <laughs> I kept thinking about it. Um, so I think like that uh, I'd like to actually just read out, you know, little, a f- couple little parts of this article. If that, is that cool with you? Yeah, that's perfect. That's literally perfect. Cause I also have my choice quotes. Um, so Pilates injuries are on the rise, body says, amid calls for regulation. So this is from the ABC News, and we'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, Jai, not her real name, injured her shoulder when she did an unfamiliar move in a reformer Pilates class in central Victoria. She's been doing Pilates for seven years and is an instructor in Melbourne. She had never done a move with a jump board before. I did my first jump and I slid off and fell off the reformer, Jai said. I scraped my arm and injured my shoulder. I was in shock. All right, so, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to re- try and resist the temptation to go through this whole article line by line. Uh, but, all right, so she's a she's been doing Pilates for seven years and she's an instructor in Melbourne and she did jump board for the first time and slipped off and scraped her shoulder, scraped her arm. Now, and we take that as evidence that we need to have somebody who's more certified teaching that class. Okay, so this person's been doing Pilates for seven years and is an instructor. So what additional certification would have been sufficient to prevent that, you know, tragic injury? I'm so happy you asked that question because that, quote that you just read was also the first thing I pulled aside and it's at the top of my list. Um, And I had a similar thought and I'm going to try really hard not to be really catty about this. Um, So I read, I feel all of those things as well. Um, And my first thought in my sort of like newer evolved life of the last three years as a Pilates instructor made my initial thought was she fell off there like Jump board was, she fell off the reformer and she injured herself. I don't feel like that was necessarily the fault of the instructor. That seems like either she was pushing herself too far in a scenario that she didn't feel comfortable with. So therefore it was like her judgment call. She shouldn't have been doing that movement or like maybe she wasn't strong enough or stable. I don't know. And not to put it all on the woman who had a negative experience in class, but it, the other thing that it made me think um, is I've been teaching for 10 plus years at this point, and I've never yet been in a class or t- like taught a class where somebody actually fell off a piece of equipment. So I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt that that's like a pretty rare experience. And the last time I was on Pilates Elephants, I was here talking about some pretty crazy things that people were doing with props on reformers. And even in that scenario, like nobody actually fell off the reformer. So not to say that it can't happen, but I my first question is, well, like how much of the norm is is her experience and not to take away from her experience. But like I don't have the stats because I actually don't know where we would find them. I don't know if anyone's tracking this, but I think the number of people I'm going to go ahead and guess that the number of people who are being injured falling off reformers in the grand context of things is probably pretty low. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, that's that's another point here is that every single bit of data about injuries in this article is 100% anecdotal. So it's just like someone had an experience and they related that experience. And, so, you know, it's unfortunate this woman fell off the reformer and scraped her arm and I, you know, don't wish that upon her. Uh, but, all right, so it doesn't sound like a, ter- you know, scraped my arm. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a terribly serious injury. Uh, and... I just think like, right, right, well, so, I mean, I I don't know any of the context. I don't know, you know, what was happening, what instructions were or weren't given, you know, et cetera. So I can't really pass any, make any judgments about whether that was move was taught well or badly or whose fault it was or whatever. But I think, you know, Pilates is one of the safest activities, you know, known to humans um, and, you know, even so, even in very safe activities, like there's a non-zero probability that someone's going to get injured, you know, like if, if enough people do Pilates enough times right around the world, someone's going to scrape their arm at some point. You know, if you put a million monkeys in a room with typewriters, one of them's going to write the work of William Shakespeare, but, it's, you know, it doesn't... <laughs> you know, but, but that doesn't mean that that monkey is a genius, and it doesn't mean that Pilates is a dangerous activity just because one person had a negative experience, you know, doing it. Like if we compare, you know, like I think the basic, you know, what the, my biggest problem, I've got two big problems with this, with this article. My biggest problem, I think I was trying to reflect on this and it's the sloppiness of the thinking that, that, is really the whole reason this podcast was born is to combat that kind of sloppy thinking within Pilates that says, okay, a million people did a million Pilates classes last Monday around the world and one of them slipped off and, you know, scraped their arm. Therefore, injuries are on the rise in Pilates. You know, it goes on to say a little bit later, there's a quote from one of the uh the 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 i think the president of the Pilates Alliance of Australasia Robin Ricks and she says um uh what does she say is it oh, yeah. she says the, yeah the PA there's a heading that says broken bones reported and then Quote, the PAA, that's Pilates Alliance of Australasia, has received two reports of people breaking bones at reformer Pilates classes. Over the last year, quote, I've heard so many reports of injuries in Pilates studios, quote, end quote, Miss Ricks said. So, so, all right, so two people contacted the PAA and said they've broken bones. Does that mean Pilates injuries are on the rise? Like, like that is the, the literal definition of an anecdotal you know, I mean, like, oh, my cousin knows these two guys who did really good with crypto. So that means, you know, crypto is really good. That's like literally the same logic, you know. Well, to your point, I agree. Um, and so I went through the same framework in my mind and I was, it got me thinking about sports because I was like, I have no context or data around like Pilates to make any assessment of how many people truly are or are not getting injured from Pilates, even though I have good reason to believe it's probably pretty low. Um, 
So I was going down the rabbit hole of trying to find out where I could gather information about sports injuries, which led me to uh, Google Scholar and then John Hopkins and their sort of like um, sports medicine research. And reading about it, it's like, of course, there's in professional sports, like people get injured. I think we all know this, but I was trying to find information about the actual rate of injuries that tend to occur. Um, and there, uh, sorry, I lost the date. I was like going to quote the number and now I can't find it. But it was saying that in the US, like they're talking about teenagers and children, like 30 minutes, and these are like pre professional athletes, like 30 million teens participate in some form of organized sport. And more than, there are more than 3.5 million injuries each year. And they, this is like any type of injury. It could mean they like sprained their ankle or broke a bone. It doesn't specify which things we're measuring for. But it's like out of 30 million, only 3.5 of them are injured. And this is across all sports. And like we could assume that like the variety of sports that these kids are participating in are varied in terms of their contact, like physical um intensity like football and like u.s football is a very high contact sport versus like i'm gonna guess that fewer people are probably getting injured playing baseball but like i don't have the data for those particular things so i don't know my mind went off on a tangent thinking about sports because i was trying to contextualize that information in relationship to our pilates world and i just I would need somebody to lead a really convincing or give me a really convincing argument to believe that we are experiencing anything on those levels, not that that was being suggested, um, in Pilates land. And that because it's not something that I'm aware of that's currently being studied, I'm going to go ahead and guess that the level of like actual injuries in Pilates are pretty low overall. Yeah, well, I, I've looked into this as well, and there, there's... I've been able to find absolutely zero research Same. Uh, relating to the prevalent, the base prevalence of. So, so, right. So, if you wanted to make a, so, right. So, here's where you know the the article is is you know big area where it's very sloppy in its the whole the writing and the researching is that you know journalism's supposed to be unbiased. It's supposed to pre pre present you know the facts as we understand them and without necessarily interpreting them. That's my understanding of what good journalism is. And leave the reader, you know, better informed and able to make a more, you know, a more intelligent decision about what their views are. Um, and so, you know, if if you were writing, if you were a journalist and writing an article about crypto, and you happen to know me, and I've got my cousin who did really well in crypto, and I said, oh yeah, you know, crypto is awesome because my cousin made all this money. Like, would you just do a big article called, you know, crypto fortunes on the rise, you know? <laughs> Um, or <laughs> would you go and do some research and look up, okay, how many people, you know, lost their shirts in crypto and how many people made a million dollars and how many people basically just didn't, made no difference. Like they they invested some money, they didn't make or lose any money. And then make, you know, like maybe get some stats from the crypto exchange or whatever, wherever you buy and sell crypto, I don't know, right? So get, you would get some stats, right? And you'd say, well, the the actual you know, crypto outperforms the stock market by this multiple or or whatever, right? You'd, you'd get the info. And so the same, if you were writing an article about, you know, injuries are on the rise in Pilates, well, surely you would go and do some research and say, you know, the average injury, injury incidence in Pilates is like, you know, 6.1 per thousand hours of people doing Pilates, which is compared to other sports or exercise, you know, is 
more or less dangerous than, you know, boxing or golf or badminton or whatever, you know, and, and you would that, then you would say, okay, well, that was in, you know, the year 2000, but since then injury rates have increased to, you know, 9.1 per thousand hours. So injury rates are on the rise, you know, like you could, you would actually do some research. And of course, when you do that research, what you find is there is no research on the prevalence of injuries in Pilates, um, but there's research on similar sports and sports that or activities that I would consider, you know, probably, you know, in principle, likely to be more dangerous things. So things that are similar, I think, in, to Pilates would be like yoga, um, Tai Chi. I would expect there'd be like a similar level of risk in those types of things. Maybe gym would be the same or maybe a little bit more dangerous. I don't know, because you're working with weights and things in the gym. Uh, and things that might be like similar, but maybe a little bit more risky in just in my sort of guesstimation would be things like, I don't know, breakdancing, gymnastics, it's sort of like Pilates, but like more fast and athletic and ballistic. Um, and, you know, when you look at, there are there are prevalence, uh, injury prevalence studies for those activities. And what we see is that, um, you know, things like gym and yoga uh, are incredibly safe. It's like the the just about the safest thing, you know, like the most dangerous part of going to the gym is driving there. You know, that's <laughs> that's the most dangerous part. And when you look at the injuries that happen in gyms and I'll pop some studies in the in the show notes, but there these are studies from emergency room admissions um, from people who injured themselves in gyms in Victoria uh, here in Australia and they found that like the number one cause like with a bullet, you know, the by a mile, the biggest cause of, of injuries in gyms is people dropping shit on themselves. You know, people just doing stupid shit like falling off treadmills, dropping weights on their foot or on someone else's foot, you know, just like being, you know, young men being idiots basically, you know, and it was overwhelmingly young men, right, who <laughs> were doing it. Um, and when you look at uh, the prevalence, and so the overall injury rate is very low in gyms, and the vast majority of injuries that do occur are people tripping over shit, falling out, you know, dropping shit on themselves, whatever. Uh, and then when you look at like yoga, very, very low injury prevalence. Um, and uh, actually, the, the, the biggest predictor of risk for injury in yoga is how long you've been doing yoga and how much yoga you do. So in other words, the longer you do it and the more you do, the more chance you're going to sustain some kind of injury, which is like, duh, that kind of <laughs> makes sense. But it also suggests that, well, being a novice actually puts you at less risk for injury in that activity. Well, thing. Right? So it's like, all right, so things that are similar to Pilates like gym and yoga have incredibly low injury rates. And then things that are even more like, you know, in my view, probably risky, like breakdancing and gymnastics, they also have very low injury rates. Like, I, I haven't got the paper in front of me, but there was one paper that looked at breakdancing as one of the, I think it was like the Junior Olympics or something, sports uh, in Korea a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of years back. And they found that the breakdancers had like, out of like a hundred plus sports, they were like the fifth lowest rate of injuries, you know, like right up there with badminton and golf and stuff you know like it was very very low injury rates and those those breakdancers they do incredible crazy stuff with their necks and wrists and and backs and things so i just think like a rational person could not conclude that pilates is a highly risky activity i i think that's 
fair. And <laughs> I agree. Um, and to your point, like I also, when I was searching on Google Scholar, there was nothing available about actual studies that have been done, um, you know, related to Pilates injuries. But the thing that did kept coming up, which was very unhelpful, was like a lot of books that people have published about like Pilates for posture and all this stuff, which you've already <laughs> talked a lot about on the podcast. So not very useful. Um, I think the other, if we're ready to move on from the injury conversation, or maybe add on to it, I guess. Um, the other thing that came up in this article that was quoted, I think, by the same person who's the head of the PAA, uh, she said that people can just do a weekend course and become an instructor, and it's really concerning um, because there's a lack of regulation around like mandatory training. And I think she's quoted, so the quote is, Ms. Ricks is concerned that the lack of regulation and mandatory training is enabling dangerous moves to be performed, end quote. And when I read something like that, my initial question is like, well, can we all define what dangerous moves are? Like, I don't know if I know what dangerous moves look like in Pilates land. So what do you think? Is ju- well, jump board, jump board obviously is one of them. I mean, we should never do board. it again. <laughs> that should be banned for a start. Well, when you, whenever you have, right, so Pilates is an unregulated industry. Well, so is exercise physiology. Um, and that is because uh, exercise, so the, 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 in that article, they talk about the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, which is the government agency that regulates regulated professions like physiotherapy, chiropractic, osteopathy. So you can't just call yourself a chiropractor and start, you know, cracking people's necks. Like you have to, by law in Australia, you have to, you know, be accredited by the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation uh, Authority. Uh, And that is because those professions, physiotherapy or physical therapy, osteopathy and chiropractic, they do spinal manipulations of people's necks, which is considered a high-risk activity because you've got your vertebral arteries that go, you know, through that area. You know, and so the potential, it's, you know, it's not very risky, but the potential to cause like a life altering injury to somebody exists, you know, when you're cracking someone's neck. Uh, and so those agencies are regulated by the government for that reason, because it's, you know, and so same with other professions that are high risk, like pilots, you know, I guess I want, I don't want my pilot to have done a weekend course, you know, um, or my surgeon. Or your dentist. You know. Right. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, there is a, there is a place for regulation. Um, uh, but reg, there's a, also a cost to regulation and the cost comes in terms of time and effort to maintain the compliance. Um, and you know, for example, overseas physios, like people qualified as physical therapists outside of Australia who come to Australia, they often take years to pass the AA, the APA exam here. And a lot of them end up giving up and actually becoming Pilates instructors instead because it's just like all too hard. They, like they fail the exam three times because they spelt a word wrong because English is not their first language or whatever. Um, and like really, I mean, if we go to the ultimate, like the ultimate in regulation was communist Russia, right, where the state regulated everything everything, including like food prices and whatever. And it's like, well, we all know how well that worked. You know, I think most people would agree that, you know, lining up for two hours every Monday to buy your bread, you know, it wasn't great. <laughs> there's a better system. 
Um, so, so there is some ideal amount of regulations, like more than zero, but less than 100%, you know, and I'd suggest it's much closer to zero than it is to 100, right? I think, you know, I want my doctor and my pilot and whatever, and my physical therapist regulated, but I probably don't want my, my baker or my hairdresser or my, you know, cake decorator or, or whatever, you know, regulated. Well, th- so I was thinking about this because honestly, the first conversation you and I ever had was a conversation about Pilates pedagogy where I was expressing all the things as a Pilates teacher trainer at the time that I thought were problematic about how we approach Pilates teacher training in the industry. And part of the end of that conversation was us talking about regulation and you saying you want less and me saying I want more as the perspective of someone in the U.S. And I think so parts of this article, although I think the article was garbage and very poorly researched and very poorly written, things that I did find interesting and that I I want to say I agree with them. Like there's a quote where um, I think same woman, Miss Rick says like, you're trusting your body in someone's hands. And like in Pilates, that's true. But, uh, and I think there's a conversation here about like scope of practice. But when we start to talk about regulation or calls for regulation in the Pilates industry, things that my mind goes to is I start to think about how before we can even have the conversation about what we're regulating, I want us to be in clear agreement about what we think our common sort of standards for practice are. And I know that that's what the PAA and the PMA in the U.S., Pilates Method Alliance, are supposed to do. Um, But my point of comparison for both of those organizations is usually to like the world of academic education. And what I think about is I think about what we call in the U.S. the common core standards, which if you want, you can link that in the show notes, but basically common core standards in the U.S. is a set of like academic standards that we've set for public education. And what they specify is what every student is expected to learn at each grade level from kindergarten through high school. And if you go to their website, they have these like sort of, um, I think it's five or six premises of like how we've arrived at the common core standards so that you know like where they came from. And the first thing at the top of that list is researched and evidence-based, meaning the common core standards for the U.S. in in our academic world for public education have been arrived at because of systematic reviews, tons of research that's been done around how we teach and what we teach and when and what is grade level and how do kids learn and all that stuff. So like, if we want to go down that rabbit hole in terms of regulation in the Pilates industry, I could maybe, I think it would be really difficult, but I would maybe be interested in that conversation Because I think, as you've pointed out, as Pilates Elephants has pointed out, there's so much old research, uh, uh, like not updated research that we continue to quote. And I think this article is an example of that. But when people start to call for regulation in the Pilates industry or people start to talk about what a qualified instructor is or isn't, the thing I always hear people going back to is like, oh, well, they should be a minimum of 450 hours certified or whatever it is. And my question about that is like, well, if you're certified in 450 hours of like old research that is not that we know from a lot of other sources is not current, like, is that really a better, more qualified teacher who potentially went to a mat training weekend that was only 50 hours, but actually like has a lot more information about like pain science and motor learning. Right. Or, yeah, I mean, so just simply the number of hours 
you know, I mean, I've got, I, I, I think this is, I like that this is an area where I don't think we 100% agree. Um, and I, I agree with, with a lot of what you've said there about, you know, um, if we do have standards, they should be based on systematic reviews. Uh, and I'm a big, I'm a big advocate of clinical guidelines and standards of care. Um, but in terms of, I, I, I guess I'm going to, you know, disagree with you on having standards of education, and I'm talking within the Pilates world here, not not within the academic world, because like the fundamental problem there is like, well, who gets to define the standard, right? And by by, and we can't literally all collectively, you know, like all like two hundred thousand Pilates instructors in the world, you know, get together and have a a discussion and come to a consensus. Like there's got to be somebody who at the end of the day says, okay, here's what the standard's going to be or some small group of people. And so inherently we're putting the power to decide, you know, what the definition of, you know, quality Pilates education is. We're putting that decision in the hands of some small group of people, essentially an elite. Um, and, you know, they get to define it. And it's like, like you say, then we come up with, you know, seemingly arbitrary things like oh, it has to be 450 hours and it's like, yeah, well, if you, if you put someone in front of a TV for 450 hours and get them to watch, you know, outdated Pilates, you know, dogma, it's like, does that make them a great instructor? No. So it's like, well, sure, there's something aside from the number of hours <laughs> that determines the quality <laughs> of an instructor, you know. And, and you and I both know, I'm sure everybody knows, that's like, well, it's possible, you know, is there anyone who's ever graduated with a degree but is still an idiot you know like is it possible to yeah like <laughs> in possible? all the doctors that graduate there are one or two doctors in that class that are probably terrible doctors like right like well in every class of doctors someone graduated at the bottom of their class right yeah totally <laughs> so um so i think you know i i, I think you know, I'm an advocate of quality education, obviously. I mean, I have a place education business and we strive very hard to provide quality education. But I think, you know, my definition of quality education is not the same as, obviously, Robin Rick's definition. And so why should I get to impose my definition and make her, you know, do it the way I think it should be done and vice versa? Why should she get to impose her views on the way I think it should be done? I just don't think that's a viable uh, situation. I actually think it's uh, it's the regulation. Now, like I said before, I'm I'm in favour of regulation in some situations, so I'm not against regulation per se. But I think in something like Pilates, where the risk is very low, mm. right? Even if you do it wrong, you know, because of all of those break dancers and all of those yogis and whatever, and 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 wrestlers even have low you know, injury rates, etc. So the, the risk has got to be very low. Uh, and so what are we doing when we're regulating is we're, we're creating barriers to entry. You know, we're making it harder to get in. That's the whole point of this article, right? It's saying like, oh, we're just letting anyone in. You can do a weekend course, right? So we're making it, we, by regulating, we're making it harder to get in, which f inherently favours the incumbents, people who are already instructors, right? So it makes it harder to get in. So it's basically an anti-competitive situation, right? And I think... That the you know if I look at this with an I guess with a with an uncharitable you know frame, it looks to me a lot like somebody who is already in the industry and is fearful of new 
entrants to the industry who are really getting some traction with, say, like things like fitness Pilates and high-intensity Pilates, and somebody who's very fearful that those people are going to take her customers and is saying, oh, no, those people shouldn't be allowed in the industry, you know, because they're dangerous and bad. You know, now that, like I said, that's an uncharitable view, but I think there's, you know, you could make an argument for, for that. So, yes. Okay. So two things, like I agree with you on the business part because there there actually was um, a quote in the article about that where she said, or somebody, one of the two people that were quoted said to the extent of like, well, anyone can open a studio right now. And my response to that sentiment is like, well, you don't have to be a great Pilates instructor to be a great business owner. And some could argue that the owning of a studio and the teaching of a Pilates class don't necessarily have to be skill sets that go hand in hand. So I'm with you. I don't think you need to be a fully, you don't even need to be a fully qualified Pilates instructor to open a studio. Like if you have a great mind for business and you want to do that, like God bless you, like go ahead. Um, Well, you don't need to be a medical doctor to open a medical clinic. You can't practice medicine in the clinic. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you don't have to be a doctor to own a medical clinic. Right. And maybe be as, and potentially there's an argument there around um, not being somebody who is a medical, like a doctor or Pilates instructor in the Pilates context um, that gives you a better mind for business or a better sense of how to run the studio from the outside because I don't know, you're approaching it with a franchise mindset or a fitness mindset. I don't know. I think that is possible and I do agree with you that that should be open and like fair game. Um, And back to the point, I I had never really considered in the context of how you just said it that more regulation could make people's access to becoming instructors more limited. And I guess that is the ultimate outcome in some like in some cases of creating more regulation But I think the reason I always drift towards wanting that more is because I... Well, I'm I'm sorry, Cole. I just want to just briefly jump in here and say, well, when you said like regulation could control, you know, the people's access, well, to regulate literally means to control or, or maintain the rate or speed, right? So it's like, yeah, controlling how fast and how easy it is for people to become instructors. That's what regulation is. Yeah. Okay. Fair. <laughs> but at the same time, um, I my heart goes out to all of the Pilates instructors in the world, myself having been one of them, who read articles like this and including, we don't have to talk about it, but another garbage article that I sent to you that had a lot of other misinformation in it um, that is recirculating all of these fallacies that exist in our industry. And, I, and, and it's like, I'm never judging the instructor who received the bad information and that is a huge judgment value judgment i'm never judging the instructor who is acting on the information that they were taught by the body that educated them i think it's incumbent on the educational institution wherever that is be it breathe education balance body pole start like name all of them all of those institutions even in my mind are responsible for the education that they're delivering and i wish that more education like whatever uh, businesses had a commitment to a higher standard of teaching and updating their information. And I think that's why I always feel like I want more in huge quotes, like industry regulation is because I want that conversation to happen more. Like I'm so sick of reading articles that are talking about TI activation and low impact exercise and how like that is all of Pilates. 
And then, you know, as instructors, if you are seeing that information repeated over and over again in like what's supposed to be journalistic media, it makes you feel like, oh, yeah, my beliefs are correct. And so then if you have to update your thinking about that, it's really challenging and confusing. So I don't know where we land in the middle of that, but I think that's where my desire for the more called to a feeling of wanting things to be regulated, even though I'm sure that if they were more regulated, I would probably bristle a little bit at that too. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you uh, in wanting, you know, to to lift the, the quality and uh, scientific rigor of what's taught in Pilates world, but I just don't think regulation's a realistic way to do that because even if I became the benign dictator, you know, and I was the one making all the decisions, like, I, I'm at, you know, I, I'm not very humble, but I'm humble enough to realize that I'd, I'm not omniscient and that, you know, I would make some arbitrary decisions based on personal preference, you know, anecdote, cognitive bias, you know, <laughs> whatever. And it's, it's like, who's like, if, 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 if Stop Pilates wants to be wrong about teaching and teach TA still like 20 years after you know, the systematic reviews have come out and said it's not valid. It's like, well, I don't think it's really doing a lot of harm. Like, I think it is doing some harm, you know, uh, for, you know, very high likelihood. But I think, you know, in the order of magnitude, it's not like, you know, someone practicing medicine without a license who's, you know, cutting people's organs out, you know, or amputating the wrong arm or something like that, you know. So I think the magnitude of the harm is is relatively, you know, benign. Um, and I think, uh, you know, like you don't need, I think, you know, it, you don't need regulation, I think, ultimately to distinguish quality in, in an industry. Like think about Amazon, right? That's a marketplace that's not regulated. I mean, you can buy some really shit quality stuff on Amazon if you choose the wrong, you know, item. And it looks great, and then you arri- it arrives. It's like one quarter of the size you thought it would be. It's plastic. It breaks before you even get out of the box. <laughs> you know, it doesn't perform the function you paid for. Um, but guess what? Then you jump on Amazon and give them a one star review, right? And so, how do we distinguish? You know, which which one's quality? It's like, well, the market's got this self regulated mechanism, which is reviews, right? And so, there's Google reviews, Amazon reviews, etc. And so, if enough people go into your class and break their break their leg. Right, pretty soon, no one's going to show up to your class. Well, you probably won't have a job you know? either. But. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so you know, I mean, th- because you you know, like like you said, like oh, quote any anyone can open a studio and teach classes. Well, anyone can open a bakery or a dressmaking shop or a tarot reading business or you know, a high school exam prep you know, service or dog kennels or convenience stores or cafes or interior decorators. Like just about any business you can think of. Anyone can open it, right? Great. And some people are going to open a cafe and they're really shit. They can't cook. You know, the coffee's terrible. Services. It's like, guess what? They're going to go out of business. You know, the first dozen people get food poisoning. It's like no one's coming back. <laughs> so it's, it's self-selecting. You know, those are the ones that go out of business in a hurry. And the ones that are good are the ones that they get word of mouth and, and five-star reviews and, and people come back to those businesses. And I think there is a, you know, it's not, it's certainly not a perfect mechanism, you know, because like you said, there's like still heaps of people teaching TA activation in the Pilates world. Um, but you know, I think you know, if I think if we fast forward a hundred years, I don't think there'll be people teaching TA activation in the Pilates world. So you know, it will self-correct at some point. It's just like 
<laughs> not not quick enough. Unless we continue to like for, perpetually for, lag behind as an industry and we'll just always be in the loop where we're always like 10 years of research delayed in our information, which is like my fear. But um, I guess like to circle it back, maybe you already just answered this question, but if you are less interested in regulation, like what do you think? What do you think the answer is? Like, do you, are we just going to self-select? <laughs> uh, well, I, that's a good question, and I don't have a, I don't have a perfect answer. Like, I don't, I, I guess my position is, I think the world's highly imperfect, and I think people, including myself, are highly imperfect, and there is no answer where like everybody teaches the perfect, exact, correct information and all consumers are happy and get the best possible deal and everyone's safe and, you know, it's like that world doesn't exist. Uh, so I think, you know, we have to adopt, um, I think the best known mechanism that we have is is the free market uh, in this case because this is a low-risk activity. It's not like we're, you know, generating massive pollution that's damaging society or we're you know, doing something very, very risky, like where I think regulation is a good thing um, for negative externalities like that. But, you know, for relatively, I mean, it's like, what are the stakes when you're doing parties? The stakes are very low. The stakes are very low. If you make a mistake, you scrape your arm, you know. Worst case scenario, you, you cut. Waste 50 minutes of your life. Right. But, but you know, I think, well, the, 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 the kind of, um, you know, what they're having a go at here is these kind of like, quote, you know, certificate, certificate three, f- fitness, you know, weekend qualified people, right? What they're describing is exactly the KX franchise Pilates instructor model here, like which is you know, kind of like club Pilates in the US. Uh, it's basically a high-intensity fitness-based Pilates workout with like a dozen reformers in the room. And their model of staffing is they get someone who's a fitness uh, instructor and then they give them their in-house Pilates you know, KX Pilates training. Uh, and KX Pilates, I mean, they have done an immense amount of good in the world because they are getting people moving and they're like increasing people's fitness and quality of life and probably saving lives by preventing, you know, heart attacks and osteoporosis and all kinds of stuff. And so it's like, and we want to discourage people from doing that because they might scrape, you know, one in a million of them might scrape their arm. That just, to me, that's like ludicrous. Um, I was going to say, um, sorry to interrupt, but uh, I took a KX Pilates class when I was in Australia and I made my husband come with me and he is like very on the fence about Pilates sometimes. And he loved their class because he felt like it was a great use of time. Like he was drenched in sweat by the end of it. And to him, that's the measure of like at a satisfying workout. So I thought it was good. Right. Now, personally, I mean, I've, I've defended and advocated for KX multiple times on this podcast. I actually don't enjoy the style of classes. Like, I don't patronise KX Pilates. It's not, it's not my cup of tea. But I think it's a fantastic thing for people who do love it, and there's lots of people who love it, because it gets people fucking moving, and it gets them strong, and it gets them out of breath, and gives them some social interaction. I think it's fantastic. There's so much great about it, and... I just, I just like, I think for us to be, dis, you know, like we've got a worldwide epidemic of obesity and sedentary behavior and, and for, for us to be discouraging people from exercising is, I think it's borders on like criminal. I think it's, it's immoral to discourage people to exercise. Um, yeah. So I guess like, what is the, what is the answer? I don't have a good answer, but I think it's, I think the best answer that we have available 
is the free market and I think, you know, reviews, you know, and and transparently sharing what you're about, like we do on this podcast. Like what you what you hear in this podcast is what you get inside our courses. We, we're a bit more organised inside the course because this podcast is basically freestyled, but and the courses are much more organised. But like the the views expressed within the podcast are going to be very, very, very similar to the views expressed within the training. Um, and so, like, well, if you hate the podcast, don't do the training. And if you love the podcast, <laughs> do the training. And I think so. I think transparency is important. I think reviews, uh, you know, are important. Uh, and then just let the let the market decide. What, what do you think? Well, I'm. I yeah. I think that that's ultimately true. Um, also, I'm trying to reorgan reframe my thinking around this. But at the same time, <laughs> I think that's true. I think that people should speak. It is it is incumbent. It does mean that there, and we've talked about this before, I've expressed this before on a lot of levels, and I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. It does mean that people who are coming into the Pilates industry need to do their own due diligence in searching out programs that speak to them, which hopefully you're doing anyway, but it's like hard to... When there's an overwhelming amount of reporting on the type that we just sort of explored together, um, it's it feels discouraging for me as somebody on the other side of that like thought process. That like we people are getting injured and Pilates is dangerous. Like they, I just get really frustrated hearing that repeated over and over again. But to your point, um, I think ultimately people need to move more and like Pilates doesn't need to be as precious as we always make it. Like as long, our scope of practice as Pilates instructors is truly, and I don't mean this in a negative way, it's truly quite small. Like we're not, I think that in the Pilates industry, we also like to like lean towards talking about ourselves like we're like life-changing gods. And I know that sometimes our clients and our students can treat us that way because we offer potentially a transformational experiences for them by like helping them move better, feel better, all the things that happen when people exercise more often, which I am with you. I want more people to do that. Um, but maybe, and this is a, a thought that's just unfolding in my mind now, maybe it doesn't really matter <laughs> as much like how qualified or unqualified we are because like if you're speaking to somebody out there and you have students coming into your class and they find what you're doing meaningful, like good for you and good for them because it's better than them being home as couch potatoes. Um, I don't know. I need to mull that one over more. All right. Well, I want to address uh, the first thing you said there about, you know, it's it's a pity that it's in sort of basically then it's it's caveat emptor, right? It's buyer beware. It's incumbent on somebody coming into the industry to really do their research and find out, you know, who is good according to their definition of good and, and, and you know, to, to make the right choice for themselves. But I think that's... Rev regulation doesn't solve that. Like if you look at university courses where something, even something like a physical therapy course or an exercise physiology course, the one I did at university, it's like that's, it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not regulated technically because it's not a government regulation, but it's mandated by exercise and sports science Australia here in, in Australia. So if you want to offer an, ex uh, an exercise physiology degree at university, you have to have you know, certain things in the curriculum, a certain number of hours on this topic and a certain number of hours on that topic and, and whatever. Um, and so it's basically, you know, for all intents and purposes, de facto, it's it's regulated. Um, and so there are like a dozen universities in Australia that offer that, you know, ESSA a compliant course. 
but you can go to one and hate it and think that was shit. The lecturers were terrible. The you know the exams were the rehash of last year's exam. The tutes were boring. There was no support. Like you can still have a terrible negative experience and feel like you didn't learn anything. I mean, in my degree, my anatomy course consisted of the lecturer droning on. You know, muscle name, origin, insertion, action, innovation blah, 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 for just like muscle after muscle for three hours once a week. It was like there was zero engagement, zero contextualization, zero, you know, problem solving. And it's like, well, that was, that was a compliant, you know, that, well, that was an accredited degree program, you know. So I think it's, regulation doesn't solve that, you know. Regulation doesn't solve that. I think, okay, you're right. I guess just on a personal level, and this is like a personal preference, I just want more dedication to excellence all around in our industry that's which i don't know that's a really broad way to say it but what that would mean to me is just it doesn't have to come from a regulating body um i wish there was and i've said this so many times before but i wish there was less of the fear-mongering and less of what this article exemplified in the like people are hurting people and pilates is dangerous Mm -hmm. and more like oh wow like Maybe even though I've been teaching for 15 years, like information has changed and now I can update my limiting beliefs because there's better information. (laughs) Like I just I run up against the wall and this is me ranting all the time about why we can't just move past this. But maybe what I hear you saying is like that's potentially just one of the ongoing joys of being in our industry. (laughs) If you want to try and distinguish yourself in the free market, you just have to get really good at combating that by committing to excellence in the way that you either lead your teacher training or teach your classes. Right. Well, I'm going to, before I gave an, uh, what I described as an uncharitable interpretation, I'm going to give a charitable interpretation now, which is, I think that almost everybody in the industry is committed to excellence, but we all just have a different definition of what excellence is. So I think that, you know, people at Stop Pilates have a a commitment to excellence, but they and I just wouldn't agree on wouldn't agree on you know what excellent looks like. Um, but I don't think that I don't think people you know wake up in the morning and think oh you know I'm just going to give average service today and I don't really care about my students. I think people really strive hard, but they just they're misinformed and they they uh, don't haven't been they haven't they haven't acquired critical thinking skills or you know they're 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 you know they're not aware or they're not they're not sufficiently aware of the, the propensity for humans to have cognitive biases and so they're they're in good faith you know promoting things that aren't true uh, so I think that's a more charitable interpretation but you know to go back to the uncharitable interpretation from Upton Sinclair, uh, you know, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it, you know? I mean, that I think that goes back to the conversation about guru, guruism in Pilates land. And, like, if you've built an industry on a specific identity and a set of beliefs and principles, it's very challenging from a capitalistic standpoint to encourage somebody to change those things. Right. And, it's you know, is it a coincidence that the people warning about short courses are the people who offer long courses? You know, and the people warning about instructors no. who are not qualified with long courses are the instructors who are qualified with long courses, you know, like. 
Yeah, or potentially the people who are then being paid in theory to be on the board of the PAA right. or the PMA. Right. Or, yeah. I think I, okay, yeah. I think okay. I think to be charitable and fair to the PAA, I'm pretty sure no one gets paid on that board. So I think they all just do it for the love of the game. Um, so yeah, I, 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 that's my understanding. I think for the PMA, that is now also the case. I actually haven't stayed current enough with them to know. Um, there were people in the organization who were being paid at one point. I don't know what that looks like now because I haven't looked at their website. Right. And, and, and I say they do it for the love of the game, which is true. I'm sure they all do it for the love of the game. And also, like if you happen to be somebody who owns a studio or practices in a certain way or runs an education company and you're on the board, it's like, and then you're voting on you know, what constitutes good education or correct practice or, or whatever. It's like, well, hmm, it's funny that what you voted on looks very, very, very similar to what you offer in your program, you know. <laughs> so I think that, that it's it's possible to be in it for the best of motives and also have self-serving motives at the same time. I think that that is true and I agree with you. Um, and actually, I guess this is maybe connected to this idea but a slight departure um, when we started the conversation, we had mentioned how this particular article that started this conversation had been misquoted um, actually by a Pilates studio on Instagram. And my thinking about that, I'm sure they did it in, I don't think they, I don't know anything about this studio. I'm going to assume benefit of the doubt. I don't think they misquoted the article purposely to scare people. Um, but it is... It is hard to not want to call accountability when organizations like that in our industry do that type of thing. Um, so like for the studio that misquoted the article, like I'm sure I'm assuming they didn't do it on purpose, but also like it is misleading and like silly for that to have happened. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm not as I'm not as charitable as you in this moment. I'm going to say it was London or oh, sorry, XL Pilates London. Um, and the quote was, quote, I was two millimetres away from become a, becoming a paraplegic, end quote. And so that is a, like in this uh, XL Pilates London post, um, slide number one says, you know, read the full article at ABC News Australia, quote, Pilates injuries are on the rise, end quote. And then the second full slide says, abc.net.au, I was two millimetres away from becoming a paraplegic, right? So that strongly suggests that, you know, you've, were two millimetres away from becoming a paraplegic due to some kind of Pilates injury. But when you read the ABC article, which I will now read to you that part, um, uh, Ms. Smith opened her Pilates studio about two years ago. I'm now quoting from the ABC article. She first tried the form of exercise eight years ago after a, after a life-altering injury. I fell, quote, I fell at an indoor trampoline centre and fractured my vertebrae, Ms. Smith said. I was two millimetres away from becoming a paraplegic, right? So the quote is based on she injured herself trampolining. And in this, you know, Instagram post from XL Pilates London, that quote is straight after the words Pilates injuries are on the rise with no context. So it's quoted out of context. I think it's done. I, I don't believe that that was a mistake. I mean, they've they've obviously read the article enough to pull that out. So they've no, like the very freaking sentence before that in the ABC article 
says it's from a trampoline incident, right? So you or they scanned it without reading it. I don't think thoroughly. I don't think it's possible to scan. It's like it's literally the, the preceding sentence. I just don't. I don't believe anyone with an IQ over eighty could have missed it. So yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm I fall on you know I'm I fall on the <laughs> on the uncharitable interpretation of that one. I just think that's highly irresponsible. I was two millimeters away from becoming paraplegic. It's like it's fear mongering, you know, plain and simple. It's completely out of context. It's a misquote. You know, I, I think it's you know that that should be retracted and you know removed from from Instagram. Not by Instagram, but I think XL Pilates London should remove it. Yeah. And to be fair, in the article after that, um, the article does go on to like speak really positively about Pilates and a 72-year-old woman who's gotten stronger and fitter. Like It's like there's a positive part of the Pilates context at the end of the article right after that story. So I'm with you. That was, it. it's mis- mis- misuse of information. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think with, you know, the, this, uh, and a couple of, it's not just XL Pilates, a couple of other Pilates studio or pages in Instagram have sort of, uh, sort of reposted their sort of quotation or highlights of, of this ABC article. Uh, and I just, I feel like it, it's, it's kind of like playground bullying in school. It's like, don't trust this person because they're different. I mean, when I was a kid in the seventies, it was like, oh, don't trust that person because they're the Chinese kid or they, they get like, they've got hippie parents and they get like homemade bread in their lunch or, you know, they've got red hair or the, like just some, you know, that, that one was a bit chubby or whatever. It's like, you just tease the, the kids that are a bit different and it's the fear of the other. And, and I, I think it's, it, it comes from a, in the Pilates world, I think it comes from a scarcity mentality, like this fear of competition that there's not enough clients to go around. And if these, you know, new people come into the industry and steal our clients, it's like, you know, that, you know, we'll, we'll suffer. And I think that's totally wrong. Like, you know, we, my Pilates studio was in Melbourne Central Business District. And uh, this was, you know, in 2007, when we opened, there was no such thing as group reformer in, in Melbourne. And then, you know, 2010 KX opened and like, you know, that became a thing, group reformer. About 2012 or something like that, 2013, Virgin Active opened like two blocks from us. And Virgin Active is this massive health club by Richard Branson. And it was literally a full city block. Like this club was like one acre. Like they had something like 200 treadmills. They had a freaking indoor pool, sleep pods, squash courts, like the whole lot right in the middle of the city. You know, it was, it was like a multi tens of millions of dollars, you know, set up. And they had like 24 Pilates reformers in this like super ultra, ultra luxury, you know, studio. And it's like all included in the membership for $25 a month. Right? And we were char- and we were charging like $49 a week or something at, at, <laughs> at that time. And, and it's like, we lost about 10% of our clients to Virgin Active. But over the next year, we gained like another 30% of clients who'd started Pilates at Virgin Active and were like, oh, this is awesome, but I want, uh, you know, a more bespoke experience. So I'm going to go to a more bespoke studio. So I think, right, well, if you lose 10% of your clients to KX and they lose 10% of their clients to you, you're going to be better off because <laughs> they have more clients than you do. So I, I think it's a, it's a tide that raises all boats. I think you know, these fitness style Pilates places, Pilates and gyms, whatever, 
introduces a lot of people to Pilates who would never have been introduced to Pilates in the first place and sparks an, an excitement and a you know, desire to, to go deeper into Pilates. And I think that benefits people who operate, you know, people like us, people like you, if you listen to this show probably, that are more bespoke and have a smaller operation and, and are more specialist. And I think that's, it's, it's all to the good. I don't think, I don't think, I think having those fitness Pilates uh, like businesses actually makes the pie bigger. I, I agree. Um, and specifically as somebody whose business right now literally is teaching private clients who were all exposed to Pilates more or less through like massive group classes and then decided that they wanted to make it their like primary personal practice. Like I think that that is true. Um, something that I was thinking when you were speaking about scarcity mindset is I think there is some inherent part of our Pilates history and culture that is just really attached to that as well. Um, I don't know if you or any of the listeners follow Kathy Ross Nash. Um, I don't know her personally. I just am on her newsletter and have taken some classes with her, but she made a really, what I personally feel is ungenerous um, post. There was a lawsuit recently where she was suing one of her former students, and this is all online unless she took it down so you can go read about it later. Um, she was suing one of her former students for teaching, in huge quotes, her work. Um, and this was highly uh, contended because it's like, well, she's teaching classical Pilates and while she has her own spice of life, like she didn't invent the system and she didn't invent Pilates. So like, how do you steal somebody else's work? And I think I'm using her as an example. She's not the only one who has done this. Many other sort of elder or connected to the lineage of elder Pilates people have done this. Um, you can probably name examples. But she wrote in her manifesto or whatever you want to call it about this that she posted on Instagram and it stuck with me. She wrote this this thing at the end that basically said, like, you people out there, all of you new Pilates instructors, if your elders don't want to share with you, it's your fault because you are making them feel like they can't share because you're taking like taking I'm not quoting directly but basically it was like implying that we're like taking things and misusing them um which connects to me to this scarcity mindset that you were talking about because it's a fear in my opinion of becoming irrelevant because what it says to me is that while you have this incredible body of work and this huge business I don't know if any of the listeners have checked out Kathy Ross Nash but she has a lot of followers and a lot of people who take her classes um, it's like this fear of not having enough and like there's so much room as we've talked about many times at the table for everybody and like maybe maybe we should think about that more before we start telling people that there's not enough space at the table 100% and I think if you know back to this idea of well if your work was so if your work is so special and unique right well if any old idiot can just like teach the same thing as you and no one can tell the difference it's like well how special and unique is it you know what that's the point like how like if you're quoting directly from return to life like i don't know there's only so many ways you can do that like contrology is control like the hundred there's not a lot of ways that you can make it anything other than the hundred right and and i think we can extend that thought and say well and something you talked about before about the 450 hour certification well if you've got a 500-hour certification and the, the business across the road is some personal trainer who's got a weekend certification and the clients can't tell the difference, like that 500-hour course was a waste of time. 
And to add to that point, uh, using myself as an example, like to be perfectly honest, at this point, I've gone through two huge teacher trainings. So let's say that I have over 1200 plus hours of certification and huge quotes under my belt, plus a master's degree. And I have to say that the things that have served me the most are the things that I've learned in the last three years, none of which I learned in any of those environments. And those are the things that have actually proceeded to me having what I continue or consider to be a pretty successful business with like really good client retention and outcomes. So now I'm like undoing the point that I made before about wanting more regulation, but maybe, maybe we need less regulation. Um, that's me in, in real time. It's me updating my belief about something I said that's awesome. moments ago. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, I was thinking about my barber the other day because uh, I get my hair cut every couple of weeks and, uh, you know, I get to, you get to know the barbers, you know, reasonably well on a kind of like nodding and smiling level because, uh, you, you know, you're sort of in there waiting for a bit and then you're watching the goings on in the mirror while you're getting your hair cut, whatever. And I've got these young boys that come in and apprentice with them, you know, they start out sweeping the, the hair off the floor and then you come back like three or four haircuts later, you know, a couple of months and now they're like, you know, doing like some basic part of the haircut under supervision of the barber and then you come back a few more haircuts later, they're cutting hair, you know, and you're like, oh, I don't, I hope I don't get you because it's like, I know it's your first day on the job sort of thing. <laughs> um, but I asked, I asked one of them, uh, the barbers there, like, oh, you know, how'd you go to barber school? It's like, oh no, I just like, I just started sweeping the floors here and they trained me up and taught me how to do it. It's like, and those guys, like they move, their hands move very quick. They're very, they have high levels of skill in what they do. And they shave, like they shave around my ears with a straight razor. And, you know, it's like you wouldn't want them to sleep. Right. But I trust them not because they've done some certification, but because I I what I sit there waiting while they're cutting the guy's hair before me, and I see them moving, and I see the the dexterity and the confidence and the speed and precision which with with which they move their hands, and I think, oh, this guy knows what he's doing, you know, this guy knows what he's doing, and I hop in the chair with complete confidence and let him pull out the razor and off he goes. It's like when you look at those videos. I mean, I don't know if if you ever fall down that YouTube kind of. Uh, you know, rabbit hole, and then you end up watching some video of like highly skilled Indian factory workers or something, you know, doing some kind of complex manual process, like with incredible precision, you know, like we're flipping, you know, pancakes or whatever with incredible precision and people just elevating something really simple and banal like that to an art form by this, the, the level of skill with which they do it. And you think like, well, I'm pretty sure that person never went to university to learn that, you know, like, you can just learn stuff by just doing it a bazillion times and getting some guidance from someone who's done it before. It's funny. Uh, so my favorite YouTube poll to go down that is in that vein is to watch highly skilled farriers, like the guys who trim animals' hooves. Um, Me because too. I like I like the hoof doctor. The hoof, the, the hoof doctor in um hoof doctor in is, the UK. His YouTube channel is yeah. amazing, and yeah. it's also like uh, kind of uh, important because. You know, if you mess it up, like that is a horse or a cow or, you know, that's a big problem. Um, and his videos, if you can link him in the show notes, he's incredible. Um, but to, here, to bring it back to Pilates, um, if you if we reference uh, 
caged lion. Like, I mean, essentially, my understanding is that's how all of the initial like Joe never had a teacher training program. He just had people in the studio and told them what to do enough times that they like learned how to do it with like some observation and correction. Um, Now, here I am completely unwinding the need for teacher training. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like my observation is, and this was sort of like when I was, I wasn't, I was never within the Stop Pilates organization. I was never employed by them, but I I kind of was within their, their kind of superstructure. I was an, I was an instructor trainer for them um, or, you know, within, I, I never, I don't think I ever worked for head office, but I was an instructor trainer accredited by Stop Pilates. And so I saw, you know, like from from a certain perspective, I saw from within that organisation, you know, because I, I went to head office a bunch of times, like seven or eight times. I think I trained in Toronto there and I sort of hung out with the head office people and had lunch with them across the road or whatever. Uh, and, you know, when you've got a massive worldwide organisation where you've trained, you know, literally, you know, 20,000 instructors or something and you've got, you know, 5,000 uh, instructor trainers across the world with, you know, manuals translated into seven different languages and, you know, like just a massive, massive, you know, organisation. Like, I think standards are very important because, you know, if – because when you get to that size, you've got, you know, the person doing the training in like Sao Paulo, Brazil, for example, is someone who was trained by someone who was trained by someone who was trained by someone who was trained by, who was trained by Moira, right? So it's like there's so many degrees of separation from the original message you know, that you have to have some kind of written process and rule and guideline and lesson plan and grading rubric and all of that stuff that says like, here's what we consider to be competent and here's what we consider to be not yet competent, you know, in this area. So I think that is important. But the thing is, as you get bigger and bigger, you have to be more and more. So like, I know, Kyle, if it was just you and me and we were we were starting an education, you know, company. It was like just, we were the only two people in the organization, right? So it's just you teaching and me teaching, right? We probably wouldn't need a written rubric or whatever. We'd just sit down at the end of the day and you'd go, I graded, you know, Mary today and she kind of sucked on the, you know, footwork because she had her feet on the, in the straps and her hands on the footbar and, you know, she was doing it all back to front. Uh, so I marked her not competent, you know, and we'd just laugh and, and nod and whatever. And there might be some edge cases where you go, like, gee, I just wasn't sure how Mary did today. Like, she she was in the right position, but her feet were, you know, in the wrong spot on the bar, and I wasn't sure if to pass her or not. And we'd have a talk about that. We'd agree on what we thought was the best way to do it, and we'd both do it that way moving forward, right? But, you know, when you've got, like, 5,000 instructor trainers with six different languages around the world working for you, you can't – you don't have that, like, dialogue, right? So you've got to make a rule, you know. If your feet are more than two centimetres from the – center of the bar, that's a fail, you know, or whatever, whatever the rule is. And, and so you have, the, the bigger the organization, the less personal it can be by definition, because it's just bigger. And so you have to be more strict and clear and precise with the rules, which means that you both raise the minimum standard and lower the maximum standard. Like you bring everybody into the middle there. That's, I mean, that is how academic core standards tend to work when it comes to grading. Um, and I have had that experience when I worked for Equinox. I was like one of two managers. There was literally three of us running the international department. So like I was overseeing um, multiple teacher trainers in other cities. And we we did run into that. And it is really hard. And you do need um, standards because especially when you have um, a large student body, 
that's paying for a course and they're coming back to you and being like, I don't understand why so-and-so in Toronto continues to fail me. Like it doesn't feel fair. I'm doing everything apparently right. And you explore the situation and it turns out that maybe that teacher and that student just have a personality difference. Like you're trying to control for that. So you have to have standards that try to prevent um, those types of things from happening, um, which I think is why I always lean in that direction a little bit more. But <laughs> Um, yeah. now that we've had this whole conversation, I've fully transitioned to the other side and I'm like, yeah, free market, like Google reviews, like, never mind. It's going to be fine. That's great. Well, <laughs> even within any organization, like people with the best of intentions and who get on well, are like some people are more just by nature, you know, more strict and details oriented. And some people are more like, yeah, as long as the vibe of the thing's right, you know, don't worry about it. It's, it's all good. And so some people, like even within Breathe Education, you know, we have, you know, trainers who like by their nature would like, oh no, your, you know, tono was pointing the wrong way in footwork. So, you know, that's not a pass, <laughs> you know, and then some other trainers be like, oh, well, your feet were basically on the foot bar. So that's good enough, you know, <laughs> like, um, and, and so we have to reconcile those and come to some agreement because it's not fair to the students that it should depend who does your assessment, you know, whether you pass or fail that assessment, right? So there should be the same standard regardless of which trainer is assessing you. Now, it's never going to be perfect, but we do have to come to some kind of agreement where we go, okay, how pedantic are we going to be and how, you know, which ones are we not going to be pedantic about, etc. So I think, you know, I, I, I'm not arguing against having standards, but I think those standards should be internal to the organisation, not necessarily externally because everybody who works at Breathe Education or Stop Pilates or whatever is there voluntarily, right? We're not sort of going and like banging people over the head and dragging them in and chaining them to the desk and making them work for us. So everybody who works there is, is a consenting adult. And so like if they don't agree with those standards, they can just go and work somewhere else where there's different standards, you know? Whereas in a regulatory situation, it's like, no, everybody is forced to comply with the the generic standard. Yeah. So I guess the, to go full circle with this, um, the thing that I would like to call for more of than from like educational institutions in Pilates land um, would be transparency around what your sort of like measurements and standards are. So in the same way that in academic education, like the common core standards are public information, like you can look at them. I think that because it is incumbent as we've agreed on students to shop around and find the programs that best fit them. I think that's going to be a combination of like your personality type, your interests, but then also like, I think that aside from saying like, you're going to have to pass these tests or whatever to get your certification, there should be more accessibility to like, you should be able to read like what it is that the standards of the organization are or what they're going to require of you in that educational setting. And Credit to the PMA, they do publish their exam study guide and it tells you, you know, the right and wrong answers to all the exam questions, basically. Uh, so, you know, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I'm but I'm not a friend of the PMA and they're not a friend of me, but I think that's one thing they do get right. Um, I think, uh, you know, just to bring it, like you said, full circle, the, in terms of like this particular article, I think it's it's terribly written, and I think it's 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 basically just. I mean, charitably, it's 
ill-informed and uncharitably it's self-serving, um, you know, fear-mongering um, by people sharing it. And I think it's irresponsible. I think it, it does harm to discourage people from exercising and to put the fear of injury into people for doing something that's incredibly safe and beneficial and everybody should be doing like Pilates. And, uh, you know, the, the, the danger of not doing Pilates, you know, includes increased risk of stroke, heart attack, heart failure, you know, cognitive decline, you know, depression, anxiety, obesity, like think of a negative health outcome and that is one of the risks that you increase when you don't exercise. So the, that, those things, which are all serious and life-threatening or you know, significantly imp- impact your quality of life or both, are the risks you take by not exercising. And it's like if we put those on one side of the scale, on the other side of the scale we put scraped your arm one time out of a thousand when you, you know, did jump board for the first time, It's like, well, I know which side of the scale I'd rather be on. Yeah. And to uh, connect to that idea, I meant to mention this earlier, but like, yes, I'm with you. Like, I think no fear mongering. And like, it seems there's not a lot of injuries that are happening in Pilates. But to compare that, like I have a friend who's a personal trainer who also happens to play contact football. Um, and she recently had a compound fracture in her ankle, which is a risk that comes with tackle football. And she also happens to be somebody who is at genetic risk for uh, blood clots. And the number one thing her doctor said to her, even though she's wearing a boot and like she can't play football, obviously, is to keep moving as much as possible because they want they don't want her to be sedentary. Um, and she's continued to work out. To our point from earlier, in the gym, she's lifting weights, obviously in a safe way for the compound pra- fracture that's in her foot. Um, but if that is possible, I am going to go ahead and just say that Pilates is something that everybody can probably be doing safely um, without a whole lot of worry. Mm, we could make the um, the headline of the title of this, this podcast. We won't because it would just be hypocritical. But we could make it Pilates fear is, is on the lo- is on the rise. Amid calls for that would regulation, be the most like eighty sensational. Like we should, we should do that. It would be like ironic and funny. But also, <laughs> I know. Well, I can think of two two examples in the last week when there's been fear mongering. So therefore, fear mongering must be on the rise. I can think of three. Like almost every article I've read about Pilates in the last week has been fear mongering. Well, there you go. That proves it. Anecdotally. Good talk. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Kyle. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, 
skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.